This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Congressman Jared Polis became the Democratic nominee for governor just last week. Now he's announced his running mate. She is Diane Primavera, a former state lawmaker from Broomfield and currently CEO of Susan G. Komen, Colorado, which supports breast cancer research. She'll become the next lieutenant governor if Polis beats Republican nominee and state treasurer Walker Stapleton. Polis and Primavera joined me from their campaign office in Denver. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Congressman Polis, tell us about the moment you asked Diane to be on your ticket. How did, how did you come to the decision? Really what set it apart, and I think, I think the call was about, what, three days ago, Diane? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So just a couple days, maybe two days after the primary. You know, we want to make sure that we deliver for Colorado families on health care and save people money because Coloradans and Americans are just getting ripped off on health care. I mean, it's ridiculous that we pay five to eight times as much for the same prescription drug, that people worry about their insurance if they're self-employed or in a small business. And at the end of the day, of all the people that we had considered and talked to, I said, you know what? Diane, far and away, will be the best partner in helping to fix this here in Colorado and save families money and expand coverage. With her amazing background working as a counselor uh, at the state level in healthcare, as a legislator, as the head of the Susan Komen Foundation, um, and of course, her strong personal narrative of having navigated the healthcare system herself as a cancer survivor. Indeed, a cancer survivor several times over, Diane. Uh, you are indeed CEO of Susan G. Komen Colorado, which fights breast cancer in particular. And uh, this was a big focus for you while you were in the legislature. You focused on preventing cervical cancer, for instance, helmet laws. But before we go into the healthcare issue in particular, what was your reaction when Jared Polis said, I'd like you to be on the ticket? Well, I was, of course, surprised and stunned. Um, I knew I was up against, a, you know, a wide variety of people with different backgrounds and, you know, a lot of talent. So, you know, I was just really thrilled when um, the final decision was made that it was me. So I'm really excited to get going and, you know, help Jared win and, and see what we can do for the state of Colorado. What can you do to bring down the cost of health care? Well, you know, I think as a legislator, I've already uh, done a lot. Um, I have a whole litany of bills that I passed that tried to uh, reduce health care costs. Um, I did some preventive stuff because we always know that prevention is a lot better and more cost effective than, you know, treatment. And um, I did some things with prescription drugs so that people who don't use perhaps their cancer medication can donate those back for people who can't afford their medication. And I just worked across the aisle a lot with the Republican legislators to bring down the cost of health care. Any new ideas? We have a lot. We're actually beginning by listening. So uh, Dan and I are going to be in Durango, Grand Junction, and Delta, hearing about unique health care concerns on the Western Slope. I think that's another thing that drew me to Diane, is we both believe in the power of listening. Diane uh, comes out of a career as a counselor. You know, and this is a diverse state. And frankly, we're both excited to go to Delta, Grand Junction, and Durango and hear about health care in Western and Southwestern Colorado and how people are frustrated with costs and access and formulating solutions that really work to save people money and expand access to good care. Diane, you represented Broomfield in the state legislature. I have that right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think a swing district. That's correct. Yeah. How do you think that plays into this particular race? Well, you know, I think, uh, for one thing, I know how to run uh, tough political campaigns. And I also know that, you know, it's not important just to consider your base, that in order to really represent your district, you have to make sure that you're 
you know, hitting issues and talking to people from the Republican Party, people who are unaffiliated and oftentimes people who aren't even registered to vote. So I think the fact that it is a swing district and that I needed to get support from, you know, more than the Democratic Party, you know, that's really important perspective to take into political office. Talk to me a bit about the political calculus here. To win this race, as you note, you'll have to appeal to independents, perhaps some moderate Republicans. And Congressman, you're, you're a liberal from a liberal part of the state, Boulder. Was that part of what went into the decision of who would be your running mate? Well, you know, uh, I, w- I never look at this as liberal versus conservative. I think, frankly, voters are frustrated with those kinds of devices. I view it as forward versus backward. If Diane and I are going to save people money on prescription drugs, we're saving Republicans money as well as Democrats and independents and Greens and Libertarians. And of course, we'll be talking about other issues, as you know I have, in terms of how we can improve our schools with access to preschool and kindergarten, protect our environment with green energy. But particularly with Diane, I'm confident that we have the team to save you money on health care and expand coverage. Do you bring anything to the ticket in terms of of its balance, its politics, its electability, do you think, Diane? Well, you know, I think my personal story brings a lot um, to the ticket itself. You know, when I was 38, um, I was diagnosed with cancer and told that I wouldn't live five years. I had two little girls that were younger than the age of six. And, uh, you know, during that first year um, that I was in treatment, I lost my job, I my marriage fell apart, and I lost my health care. So mm. I was left to try and figure out, number one, am I going to be able to get a job? Will somebody hire me when I'm terminally ill? And number two, will I be able to get a job where I have health care coverage? Because that was, re- you know, really critical for me. So, you know, I bring some real-world experience um, to the ticket that I think, you know, people can relate to, because I've walked in the shoes of people who are sick and people who are trying to juggle, you know, raising a family and and being ill at the same time. Uh, Broomfield, again, which you represented in the legislature, uh, has also been at the center of recent debate over fracking. Uh, And I I wonder what place you see that type of oil and gas drilling having in, in the city and elsewhere in Colorado. It's no doubt going to be an issue this election. Well, you know, I know the Broomfield City Council has been very responsible, along with the mayor, in, in trying to work to reduce uh, the negative impact on homeowners. Uh, you know, of course, that uh, statewide, we do want to have a discussion about how we can make sure that setbacks are uh, sufficient to protect the health and safety of people who live in neighborhoods. Uh, and that's been an issue really across many areas of Colorado, including western Colorado. But I do say that I think the, the efforts of the Broomfield City Council and the Adams County Commissioners have been very constructive in helping to reduce impact to residents of Broomfield. Do you hope that those setbacks are statewide, Jared, or customizable? You know, um, the problem solvers are on the ground, uh, meaning, you know, the people that are best able to address issues in a community are the elected officials closest to that community. I'm a big fan of that. I mean, whether it comes to zoning or uh, legal cannabis or, or, or you name it, let the city councils, the commissioners, rather than Denver politicians make decisions that affect your daily quality of life in your community. You know, I agree with uh, Jared. You know, I think the most important thing that we need to look at in any community is health and safety. And I think that's um, one of the things that Jared has emphasized is that, um, you know, if if it's to be done, it needs to be done, you know, safely. Um, There's a lot of considerations in a community when it comes to fracking. You know, there's water issues and um, transportation issues and wear and tear on roads and things like that. But I think the most important thing um, is health and safety. Diane, you'll also now be the chief surrogate of a campaign with uh, pretty deep pockets. Um, Congressman Paulus spent $11 million of his own money during the primary. 
Um, does it mean that, that fundraising is less of an imperative for you? Well, you know, um, I think the most important thing about Jared and one of the things I like the most is he won't be beholden to any special interest group. And I think that's what's really important. You know, I think that's what we need to focus on. Will it mean that you uh, don't have to spend as much of your time, perhaps, as past candidates for lieutenant governor fundraising? Well, you know, we both will be making sure that we attract the grassroots support we need to win. Diane used to do all these wonderful pasta primavera events as fundraisers. I'm sure we'll put her pasta talents to uh, test on the campaign trail for some grassroots fundraisers across our state. And my dad would be so proud. You would hand out a recipe for pasta primavera, I think, in earlier campaigns, Diane. Yes, at the Broomfield Days Parade, I would always hand out pasta primavera recipes, and we talked about pasta being a healthy choice. So, uh, so healthcare obviously uh, has played a big role in your personal life, your political life. Would you name one other issue, Diane, that you're passionate about tackling if you win? Well, I think one of the most important things we can do for our planet is uh, move closer towards uh, you know renewable energy. And I know Jared wants to have 100% renewable energy by 2040. Um, I really walk the talk. Um, I drive an all-electric vehicle, and I put solar on my house. And, you know, all roads really lead to health care. And I think, you know, if you take care of your environment and some of the pollutants that are in it and things like that, um, it's bound to have a positive effect on health care as well. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Jared Polis announcing his running mate in the governor's race. Diane Primavera will join him on the Democratic ticket. We've yet to hear whom Republican Walker Stapleton will choose, but we've invited him on when he's ready to announce. The president is expected to announce as soon as Monday whom he'll nominate to the U.S. Supreme Court. We know his list still includes two names from Colorado, and we'll hear about them shortly. Of course, the next justice replaces Anthony Kennedy, who's been described as a conservative with an asterisk. Kennedy's legacy was a hot topic at the Aspen Ideas Festival just last week, where Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine spoke. She covers the high court. We caught up with her at a cafe in Aspen. She'd just written a column about Kennedy and the future of the court. She says Kennedy was often a reliable conservative, but one who famously sided with liberal judges on a few big cases, hence a conservative with an asterisk. And the asterisk, especially about marriage equality, is a really important one that has been just a crucial shift in American life. And Kennedy made it possible um, in a way that progressives have to acknowledge. On the other hand, when you think about his opinion in Citizens United, which, um, in my opinion, completely misunderstood how money corrupts politics, when you think about Bush versus Gore, in which he helped stop the Florida recount. And I think in particular, lately, some of the fifth votes he's cast in favor of making it harder rather than easier to vote and harder to have fair and free elections. That's also part of his legacy, too. With Kennedy's retirement, Bazelon says there's no better time to think about the Supreme Court and its role in everyday life. President Trump's appointment will likely transform the Supreme Court, turn it into a very conservative body, and it has enormous influence on American law and on people's lives. And I think most of us like go about our lives and the Supreme Court feels sort of abstract to us, but it actually determines all kinds of things. 
there are just a number of ways in which the court is shaping our employment, our economic life, our environment that go beyond kind of abortion and guns, the things we typically associate with the court. Um, And I think right now, if the court is going to radically shift, we should be thinking about all of its influence. Indeed, President Trump has indicated he'll nominate a conservative justice. So we asked Bazelon what the court might look like in, say, two years. I think the court looks like a place where Chief Justice John Roberts is marshalling a lot of conservative steps toward um, a different kind of America. I don't necessarily think they will directly overturn Roe versus Wade because that would be so politically explosive, but they can limit it and they can gut it. And the same could be true of the Voting Rights Act, of other protections that labor has against business, um, that consumers have um, when their products go wrong. There's just a lot of domains in which the Supreme Court sets the terms for American life. And we're going to see more and more decisions come down that move toward conservative outcomes. That is Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine, who spoke with us at the Aspen Ideas Festival last week. Okay, now to the two Colorado judges on Trump's list. They are Timothy Timkovich and Allison Ide. Both of them sit on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And their names were on the list the last time around when Trump picked Colorado's Neil Gorsuch. At that time, we got the skinny on these jurists from Rebecca Love Corliss, founder of a legal institute at DU. First, she told us about Allison Ide, who used to be on the state Supreme Court. She grew up in Washington State. She went to Stanford. She went to the University of Chicago. Ultimately, she clerked for Clarence Thomas on the United States Supreme Court. She came back to Colorado. She litigated for a while with Arnold and Porter. She taught at CU. And then she also served for a short period of time in the Attorney General's office in Colorado before she was appointed to the court. That was in 2006 by Bill Owens, I think. It was indeed. The Republican governor. Her judicial performance evaluation ratings, which we look to in Colorado as some indication of whether someone is doing a good job, are stellar. She's very learned. She's thoughtful. She writes well. She is uh, succinct. She's not a justice who waxes on and on. And in general, I would tell you that everything I know about her would suggest that uh, she's a superb justice. Um, And from a personal perspective, she's also a really nice person. Uh, Can you give us an example of a decision that Alison Ide has made, perhaps that stands out? I would suspect that the decision that will be called out as an indication of her political ideology, Mm -hmm. and we're going to get to questions about whether that's an appropriate measure of a judge or justice uh, in a few minutes, but I would suspect that it is the decision that she wrote regarding control of guns on the University of Colorado campus. Um, She wrote a decision striking down a ban on licensed concealed handguns at CU. And I would imagine that would be used as a talisman for some sort of political ideology surrounding the Second Amendment. 
I would suggest that her jurisprudence is is much broader than that. Let's move on to Tim Timkovich, chief judge of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. This covers Colorado, five other Western and Midwestern states. What did Timkovich do before he joined the Tenth Circuit? He's had a really interesting background. He is a third-generation Coloradan. He went to Colorado College. He went to the University of Colorado Law School. He clerked for Bill Erickson, who at the time was Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, Judge Timkovich was in private practice in Denver and D.C. He was Solicitor General of the state of Colorado. So he had a background both in the practice of law and also in public interest service uh, before he went on the bench. He was nominated by President Bush this is the, seat, the second Bush. The second Bush and took a seat in 2003 on the Tenth Circuit. What's a decision Judge Timkovich has made that he's known for? So, again, this will be the I would bet you category of okay. decisions that will be called out. But it's the Hobby Lobby case, uh, which is the case in which the Tenth Circuit uh, found that for-profit corporations, closely held corporations, and that's a key distinction in the case, could assert religious freedom as persons under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and decline to provide contraceptive care if it was against their religious beliefs. And he found that they indeed they had, had the right that. to do that, mm-hmm. yes. Justice Corliss, I'd like to play a portion of an interview that the president did with Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes. During the campaign, you said that you would appoint justices who were against abortion rights. Will you appoint, are you looking to appoint a justice who wants to overturn Roe v. Wade? Look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put, I'm pro-life. The judges will be pro-life. They'll be... But what about overturning this law? There are a couple of things. They'll be pro-life. They'll be, uh, in terms of uh, the whole gun situation... We know the Second Amendment, and everybody's talking about the Second Amendment, and they're trying to dice it up and change it. Uh, They're going to be very pro-Second Amendment. That sounds like a litmus test. How the country chooses judges is a major focus for your institute at DU. What do you make of Trump's criterion for judicial selection? What we argue for at IELTS is that the processes by which judges are selected, should focus on impartiality, choosing people to come to the bench who are not going to apply their own personal ideology, but rather are going to review the facts, apply the law, and act like judges. And so you would not look at a judge's abortion stance and say that has any bearing necessarily on their impartiality, even if it's an abortion case that comes before the court. Ideally, a judge should not prejudge cases that come before the court. And all of us have watched Supreme Court nominee confirmation hearings, and we haven't heard what goes on behind closed doors, but even in those confirmation hearings, you can see how uncomfortable it is for the nominee to try to deal with those questions of how are you going to rule if a particular case comes before you, because you don't know how you're going to rule. And so better to ask questions that gauge their impartiality than their politics is what you're That's, saying. That is is my 
best case scenario. Okay. Now, I'm also a realist. I still hesitate to give up ground in terms of what the ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal is to find somebody who's really smart, really principled, who is collaborative, who comes to the job with an open mind and a willingness to work with colleagues and to really drill in on the cases that are before them. So if you were the president, what, what is a question you'd ask or a member of the Senate? I would ask what the nominees believe to be the most important job of a judge. Hmm. What is the goal of the United States Supreme Court's role in our constitutional democracy? How should the court and the members of the court be perceived by the country? And my objective... (laughs) and let it be known that I'm not making the decision, (laughs) just in case you were wondering, uh, nor am I endorsing anybody. But my objective would be to find someone who recognizes that the court is trusted and trustworthy only when it is perceived as acting within the bounds of the law and not acting as a policymaker. Thanks for sharing your thinking with us. Thank you. From the archives, an interview with Rebecca Love Corliss, a former state Supreme Court justice herself and founder of the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at DU. We spoke in 2016 about the Colorado judges that remain on the president's list for the U.S. Supreme Court. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The 4th of July might be a perfect time to crack open a good book. Today, as we do each year at this time, we get some recommendations for summer reading, all with Colorado ties or Western themes. Nicole Magistro is back. She's the owner of The Bookworm of Edwards. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Ryan. And Abby Paxton's with us. She manages The Book Bar in Denver. Hi, Abby. Hi there. How about a novel to start? Maybe something to escape reality a little bit, Nicole. Absolutely. Well, the western slope of Colorado, hot, high, dry mesas, perfect for summer. And the optimistic decade is set there. It's a novel by Heather Abel. And this book is about a few characters who really are drawn from real life. Uh, Caleb is a charismatic leader for a back-to-the-land summer camp, which is steeped in total utopian ideals. But this is not the 60s. This is the 1990s. And so global capitalism is taking hold, and Western Colorado is still reeling from all the jobs lost during the oil shale bust. Oh, yes. This is when basically towns were decimated because all the hope that had been poured into this energy source sort of went belly up overnight. Absolutely. And while the novel is ambitious and tackles some really big questions, it's also lighthearted and fun in places. Um, There's urban ideals, there's rural realities, and really it's about what happens when good intentions go terribly wrong. All right. The book is The Optimistic Decade by Heather Abel. Uh, It's one we featured earlier on the show, so you can hear 
a conversation with Heather at CPR.org. For your novel, Abby, The Blue Hour by Laura Pritchett, a pretty well-established Colorado author. Absolutely. I cannot stop thinking about The Blue Hour. Um, So the novel starts with a tragedy that just rocks this entire community living on a mountainside in Colorado. From the tragedy, we see all these different characters that Laura has created. Um, Every chapter is told from a different character's perspective and almost reads as if it could be a short story. At the same time I was reading this, it felt almost like I was reading a thriller. Her characters are just that well drawn out. Fascinating. So each chapter feels really different, but is part of the narrative. Absolutely. Every character is simultaneously dealing with this sense of isolation of living on a Colorado mountainside. And at the same time, the sense of isolation is what draws them closer together. And perfect for a summer read, I think. I think it's a seriously sexy book. And it surprised me in that way. Um, And the way that she's able to show all of these different characters their sides of their humanity as sexual and soulful and how that kind of pushes us all forward. Here's what Laura Pritchett told us about this book. I feel like my goal as a writer and as I mature as a writer, I hope this is always true, that I continue to get more courageous in saying things that other people that's difficult to talk about that many other people won't say. Um, there's a famous quote, I think, by Eudora Welty that the way to become a better writer is simply to become more honest. And that's about the human condition. Laura Pritchett, author of The Blue Hour. We're getting summer reading recommendations. And Nicole, you brought a memoir. Yes, Rough Beauty by Karen Olivan is a beautiful story also taking place on a Colorado mountainside, in this case, mostly Jamestown, Colorado. And uh, Karen goes there really for anonymity, for refuge. Uh, She doesn't really want to be bothered by anybody. But uh, the story is bookended by a fire at the beginning and the terrible flood of 2013 at the end. And really, you see that Karen needs companionship. She needs uh, other people around her. And so it's a beautiful book about community as well as her own personal story. You talk about Jamestown, the community near Boulder. The fires in that seem... Awfully timely. Absolutely. And although Karen's fire is a house fire, uh, it is it is very real and terrifying, um, as you might imagine a wildfire to be. She draws it so beautifully and yet really searing and loud in the book. It is Rough Beauty by Karen Avenen. You have an autographed copy there. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Karen is a lovely person and a professor at CU. Abby, you have some poetry to recommend. I'm not sure I would initially think of poetry for my summer reading list. What made you choose it? It was unexpected for me as well, actually. So Trophic Cascade is Camille T. Dungy's fourth collection of poetry. Reading it was really an arresting experience. She's able to do something where she's blending this idea of motherhood with the natural world. So the poems um, take different forms. There are two-line poems that are sort of call and response. There are longer lyrical poems. Trophic cascade. Trophic meaning like of or related to food, eating. So she's thinking about the way that um, ecosystems change when we as humans will 
either introduce or eliminate a top predator. So the title poem of the collection of poetry is Trophic Cascade. And at the end, she's able to bring it all together with this um, connection to being a mother and the way that death can also create all kinds of unexpected life. Would you maybe read us a two-line poem? Sure. So this poem is a little surprising. It's called Frequently Asked Questions, number eight. Are you going to have another child? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's a loaded question, isn't it, to ask a woman, are you going to have another child or even a man? Uh, All right. It is called Trophic Cascade, and the poet is Camille Dungy. Nicole, uh, a story of real adventure now. Tell us about Wings of Her Dreams by Anne Lewis Cooper. So this is a true story and documentary, really, of Kitty Banner Seaman. She was one of the very first Alaska bush and glacier pilots. So she, in the 70s, is starting to fly over Denali, take climbers there on rescue missions. Uh, She even brings sled dogs sometimes in her Cessna. This is Um, not safe flying. No. (laughs) These are the kinds of flights you might make sure your will is done before (laughs) you uh, go. But the story is amazing because Kitty took journals, painstaking details in journals over the course of about a 30-year career. Uh, And there are tons and tons of full-color photos throughout the book. So you see Kitty, this beautiful, independent, fierce woman with her airplane at all times. I mean, there's an image of her standing on, I guess, like the pontoon with her dog and fish. So she catches fish. That's right. Well, in Alaska, you you really have to be independent. You have to be a survivalist in some ways. And in in some cases, Kitty did have to survive terrible circumstances uh, in order to help save or rescue climbers. Um, But she is just a big personality and a wonderful uh, storyteller. Uh, Anne Lewis Cooper really brings the journals to life. And um, for people who love adventure and for people who love climbing, um, they will see themselves in this story, I think. I think those in search of adventure might also like the new book from Craig Childs. Uh, This is called Atlas of a Lost World. Tell us about uh, the form that adventure takes in this book. Well, Colorado people love Alaska. (laughs) And Craig Childs, of course, lives on the western slope of of Colorado. But he takes um, the look at the land bridge. So the idea that people are walking across between continents before the Ice Age, during the Ice Age. And he kind of draws this picture of North America, like, well, what was it actually like before humans were here? Because North America is not native for humans. So he begins to draw the picture of what it must have been like. And of course, Colorado plays a part in that history. There's a great scene where um, a professor, an archaeologist, Jason LaBelle, he takes a group of students to the Lindenmeyer site, which is up in northern Colorado at the Wyoming border. And uh, he says this, On a crisp autumn morning, he brought his students out from Colorado State University, showing them the site they'd been studying in the classroom all semester. When he handed out pin flags, the students bobbed like sewing needles, marking flakes of rock and pieces of burnt bone winnowed to the surface. In places, the ground looked showered by cultural debris. When he sat on the ground and talked with his students at lunch, LaBelle said, It must have been some kind of rainbow gathering or burning man. 
It was a greater concentration of Ice Age artifacts than you'll find almost anywhere in the Americas. <laughs> I like this idea of an early burning man. That's right. Craig Childs has an awesome way of bringing humor into history, and that's why I love reading him. Atlas of a Lost World. How did people come to North America, eventually to Colorado? It's what that book explores. And uh, here's a clip of an interview that I did with Craig Childs about what those like, original settlers might have thought. I don't know if they would have realized what was ahead of them, that uh, half the planet didn't have people at that point in history, that human evolution had all happened on the other side of the planet. And and I, I think, oh, if could there be any way that they knew what was ahead, that there was a whole continent out there? Because they were really at the edge of human expansion. They were, that was as far away as you could get. And I imagine... There was a sense of isolation, of, of going out farther and realizing there's just nobody out here. We cannot forget young readers. They have the summer off in many cases. So, Abby, what have you brought us for kids? I brought Do Princesses and Superheroes Hit the Trails, a National Park Adventure. Huh. This is written by Carmela Lavinia Coyle, one of our Colorado authors, and illustrated by Mike Gordon. This is a necessity in every young family's library. If anyone is thinking about taking a family vacation, a family camping trip, especially um, hitting up any of those national parks, this is necessary. It is filled with joyful rhymes. Every single page is about a different national park in the United States. And it also has great reference material for young ones, which is hard to come by sometimes. So there's a lovely map in the front and there are trivia facts in the back. And it's a great way to get little ones really excited about, you know, the wonders of our country. Well, you have me excited enough to, to want you to open the book and share a fact with me or... Or let's see. I can share my favorite page. Okay, sure. Uh, is in Yosemite National Park, and the text goes like this: Sometimes I can't find the words in my head. Maybe it's okay to be silent instead. And they're standing in front of you know this beautiful landscape and just in awe. In awe. I was mm. just going to say how how much you can be in awe in those places. Thanks to both of you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank Thanks, you so Ryan. Much. Abby Paxson manages the book bar in Denver. Nicole Magistro owns the bookworm of Edwards. Their summer reading recommendations, all with Colorado or Western ties, will be at CPR.org. Still to come, a lemonade baron who's not old enough to drive. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Extreme drought is prompting a number of Colorado communities to reinvent their 4th of July fireworks celebrations. As the climate continues to change, prompting more wildfires, some people say there must be room for new traditions. CPR's Grace Hood reports. Glenwood Springs was one of the first cities in Colorado to make the dramatic announcement. No fireworks this year. In fact, the conversation began two months ago at a contentious city council meeting. It is an incredibly tough decision. Deborah Figueroa is the town's city manager. Tourism is key to Glenwood Springs' economy. And summer traffic and the July 4th fireworks display are at the center. And it's no stranger to the threat of wildfire. It came down to we need to protect the city. And actually by pre-planning, we have a laser show in place. 
across Colorado, it's up to cities and counties to make this decision. A laser show may not have the same gravitas as fireworks, but Figueroa tried to create an equivalent attraction. She hired the same company that lit the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival in California. To the east, the ski resort town of Steamboat Springs also replaced fireworks with lasers. In Aspen, 50 drones will light up the sky on July 4th. To patriotic music, they'll swarm into formations that include eagles and the American flag. There's lots of things to do besides subjecting ourselves to the risk of wildfire. Jennifer Balch is a geography professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. She runs EarthLab, which uses satellite data to study things like how wildfires start. Balch has found that people started 84 percent of wildfires over a two-decade period between the early 1990s and 2012. July 4th was the single biggest day for human-caused wildfire. It's a risk that I don't, I don't think it's worth taking. I think we should try and develop some activities that are different from fireworks that can still mark um, our Independence Day. That idea is a non-starter for Frank Elliott. His family owns Jurassic Fireworks, a pop-up fireworks sales tent just north of Denver. You got sparklers, smoke bombs, snappers. Elliott says business is down because of fireworks sales bans in places like Aurora and Arapahoe County. He bought a lot of his inventory last year before he knew about the fire danger. He thinks the recent rain on the Front Range should ease fireworks sales restrictions. But as you look at the weeds right there, they're green. And we're not selling the stuff that flies in the air. We're selling little family packs like this that say emit showers of sparks. And what about those big fireworks that shoot high into the air? Elliot says he thinks people are still buying and selling those illegally on the street. Because I don't think that it merits the ban that they have in place right now. So this, to me, might be the worst year ever. Southwest of Colorado, drought conditions in Arizona are even more severe. In Flagstaff, that means the first canceled fireworks display in more than a decade. There's a lot of things we look at before we go off the cuff and make that decision about, hey, let's shut down fireworks. Pat Stasky is the fire marshal for the Flagstaff Fire Department. It's a town surrounded by national forests that also depends on tourism. He says a lot went into that decision, like weekly briefings to evaluate fire danger, the weather, the availability of firefighting resources. We really don't want to be on the front page of uh, the trades of the fire service uh, periodicals and, and, and magazines going, oh, a huge wildland fire was caused in Flagstaff that burned so much acreage and homes. So we want to keep out of that realm. As cities look ahead to their future fourth celebrations, the drones that will light up the night sky in Aspen this year could have company down the road. Raina Price is with the Great Lakes Drone Company. She's not ready to give up on fireworks entirely. We've done a show where we've worked together with fireworks. So we can incorporate our drones with a fireworks to add that extra wow factor to a performance. Because sometimes even classic traditions need a little modern pizzazz. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Fireworks are one sign of summer, so are lemonade stands. And one boy has taken them to new heights. 12-year-old Jack Bonneau is founder and CEO of Jack's Stands and Marketplaces. Since 2014, he has hired other kids to staff his many lemonade stands, and they get a share of the profit. We met him when he was nine. Now he has big news. Good Times restaurants are selling his lemonade. 
And it's a lucrative partnership, says President and CEO Boyd Hoback. We helped him on the manufacturing side get his recipe fine-tuned and then our merchandising in each one of our stores. And for June, which is really only about three weeks in June, we sold about a third more lemonades this year than we did last year. So it's going to be good for us and very profitable for Jack. He'll make several thousand dollars, I think, over the partnership here through the summer. So it's been fun to support him and his entrepreneurial efforts. Well, Jack Bonneau joined Nathan Heffel to talk about his company's growth. Jack, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you. Tell me what's been going on since the last time you and I chatted. Sure. Uh, so recently, I have a new deal with uh, Good Times. I'm really excited. Uh, we're bringing my lemonade to 35 Good Time locations in Colorado. Um, I have uh, four flavors, uh, mango, black cherry, uh, strawberry, and just classic lemonade. Uh, and also, uh, I'm going to have my stands at select times and locations at Good Times, and the schedule will be at jackstands.com coming up later this week. So how did this deal come together? I mean, uh, this is a quite a big food chain in Colorado. Yes, yeah, I, I'm really excited. Um, it came together. Um, we uh, actually got in touch with one of the executives. They were saw me on Shark Tank, uh, got interest from there, and uh, yeah, they were interested in having my lemonade there. And I'm assuming it's been fun, but it's also been a big learning experience for you too, right? Uh, it, it's unreal. Uh, just to uh, get this whole experience, it, I mean, it's truly been a learning experience for me to see how the lemonade is created uh, with the different materials and the um, ingredients. So it's been a great learning experience for me. And you've had to oversee all of this stuff. So talk a little bit about how you chose where the lemonade was made, what flavors you wanted, how it's going to get into people's uh, hands through these fast food locations. Yeah, uh, so we started just taste testing at my house. Uh, we invited a few friends over just um, trying out different flavors, different amounts of uh, lemon juice concentrate, different amounts of sugar. And then once we had the final formula, we had to put together all the cost on how we're going to mass produce it. Um, so, yeah, it's been a working progress uh, and we're getting there. Tell me a little bit about the lemonade stands. How are those going? And is it growing? Is it staying steady? I mean, last time we talked, you had some pretty big ramp up plans. Yeah, uh, it's going really steady right now. Uh, this summer, I have my uh, Jack stands at the Orchard Music Series. It's every Saturday. Um, and uh, Preston Cogburn is operating it. Uh, he and his brother Gavin have been operating my stands for about three years now. Uh, they're 10 and 8. And um, now uh, Preston is actually the manager of that location. Uh, he's teaching kids how to uh, greet and serve the customer, how to take change, how to uh, take credit cards, and how to track their sales. And they're doing all of that at 8 and 10 years old, and you're 12 years old, Jack. Can you give us a, a quick synopsis of exactly what Jack Stance is, what you do, how uh, kids are trained to sell lemonade at one of your stands? Sure. Uh, so Jack Stands and Marketplaces um, is um, where kids can operate and sell lemonade, iced tea, and other young entrepreneurs' products and tell their inspirational stories at different malls and farmers markets. You have all of these individual stands with all these kids, and you oversee the whole thing, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, kids can sign up at jackstands.com for a date and a location. I'll come and I will teach them how to greet and serve the customer and just how to operate the stand. And then at the end of the day, we'll go through a mini profit and loss statement to figure out the revenue expenses, profit, and tips. And they'll walk away with some good money uh, for the holiday season or for the summer. And it sounds like they learn a little bit about business while they're doing it as well. Yes. Uh, we're looking for corporate sponsorships to keep opening my uh, marketplaces and stands more uh, to 
keep more kids learning and experiencing entrepreneurship. Now, do you have a permanent location around Colorado or do these stands move around the area? Oh, uh, well, just recently uh, I got my uh, first permanent location at Cherry Creek. Um, it was a f- it's called the District Shops. It was a former Bed Bath and Beyond and uh, yeah, so my first permanent location. And this holiday season I'm going to have my marketplaces and stands for the third time um, in a row um, every year at um, Flatirons and Park Meadows. You have the Good Times Partnership selling your lemonade at 37 franchise restaurants around the state. You have a permanent Jack Stands and Marketplace in Cherry Creek. Uh, what else are you doing uh, with your company right now? A stand that I'm particularly excited about is I'm working with uh, the shops of Northfield Stapleton in the city of Denver to open uh, my own Jack Sands and Marketplaces location there. And kids can operate that after, um, I believe, uh, three uh, boys, their lemonade stand was shut down at the uh, Stapleton shops. Uh, So we're opening uh, one up there. And I really just want to keep opening my stand so kids can learn and experience entrepreneurship, uh, youth entrepreneurship, and uh, keep telling other young entrepreneurs stories. And just for some context, that lemonade stand you were talking about was shut down over Memorial Day weekend in Stapleton. There were three boys who were operating a stand without a proper license, and they were shut down by police. So it seems that you're not trying to just make money, but what you're trying to do is also pretty altruistic. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I know we've been talking about all the success that Jack Stands and Marketplaces has had since you began it in 2014, but have there been failures? Have there been uh, some unexpected hiccups that you're just like, wow, I I didn't expect for that to happen? Well, it has. um, There's been... um uh, so a few surprises um, in the um, good, good times experiences, um, just um, making the lemonade, some deliveries didn't come in on time, you know, just, um, you know, normal stuff that you'd expect to happen. Uh, it's just cool to see how this all came together um, and, yeah, how it's uh, the final product. Because I'm assuming you're not working with a with a child over at Good Times. You're working with an adult team, a legal team, I'm assuming, and, yes, and yeah. teams for rollout. So how's that been? Yeah, it's been cool. You know, uh, a few conference uh, room meetings. It's been really, really, really fun. And the last time we chatted on Colorado Matters, you're with your father, Steve Bonneau, who uh, inspired you to start your company. Uh, how's he been doing? Um, my dad's great. My mom's great. You know, uh, just continue to support me along with my school and everyone is just really supportive of what Help, I'm doing. Helping out as much as they were in the past or... Uh... Uh, they're a little slacking a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, they better get up in that. I also understand that you've been going around the country talking about jack stands in marketplaces too, huh? Um, the past school year, I spoke to about sixteen hundred kids in uh, Florida in the Florida Keys, and I also went out to Washington D.C. and spoke. And I was on a panel with a few other kids and spoke at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce annual summit. I also uh, put together um, uh, for Boulder Startup Week, I spoke to uh, several hundred kids around the uh, Boulder Boulder Valley area. And uh, just, uh, I think a month ago, I gave my uh, TEDx speech in Boulder. And so uh, do you have time to to play and hang out and and do all that good stuff? I think we've asked that before, but it just still seems you're you're still young, you know? 
Oh, yeah. Um, well, I really enjoy my business, but I do get uh, my fair share of playing with my friends, doing video games. Uh, and then there's a new uh, – one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is there's this new entity that's uh, opened up, uh, Ninja Nation in Lafayette. Um, and it's basically where there's a bunch of um, former ninjas or um, American Ninja Warriors who train there. It's basically just like a facility where kids can come and try out and train uh, on the real courses that – American Ninja Warrior uses. So you definitely still have time to be a kid. Uh, but final question, I want to know now that you've been dealing with uh, the expansion of jack stands and marketplaces, you have this deal with Good Times. Uh, when you're interacting with adults and they see that you're a kid, do they do things that are annoying to you? Do they approach things uh, with you that you think is kind of annoying because maybe they see you as just a kid? Uh, yeah, well, um, many adults, um, they sometimes they don't think that I should be working because I'm a kid. I should be, um, you know, going playing video games. But I, I, most of the people assume that I'm just this businessman. I don't have any fun, but that's not true. I mean, I'm a really fun person. I, I go on slip and slides. I play video games with my friends. Uh, so yeah, it's fun. I have fun doing my business and also playing with my friends. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you very much, Nathan. 12-year-old Jack Bonneau is speaking with Nathan Heffel. His Jack stands and marketplaces are found along the front range, and his lemonade is available for a limited time at Good Times. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.